Uh, one of my uh, church history heroes is an American missionary from the 1700s named David Brainerd. In my opinion, he's one of the greatest uh, church history figures uh, throughout the history of the church. And during his life, he was not very successful. He was contemporaries with George Whitfield and uh, John Wesley, the big preachers of the Great Awakening. And compared to their conversion numbers, as they're seeing thousands convert as they preach, he had a few dozen people and, and a life poured out, uh, maybe a few dozen that came to know the Lord. And then he died at 29, a year younger than me. He died of tuberculosis. And so the question is, why do I love him? Why is he so great? Why has his name lasted for 300 years till today? And the answer is, right before he died, he bumped into, met uh, Jonathan Edwards, very famous pastor, theologian. And Jonathan Edwards, in getting to know him, actually invited him into his house in his dying days and found his diary, found his journal, and uh, asked David Brainerd, if he could read it, and as he cracked it open and read it, he realized what he had just uncovered was this incredible treasure of devotion to God. This unsuccessful ministry or minister, missionary who died at 29, gave Jonathan Edwards his journal. Jonathan Edwards read it, uh, published it, and it was the most successful book uh, he had ever published, and it led to, in a lot of ways, what we call now the modern missions movement, the modern missionary movement where William Carey would go to India and men, missionaries that would leave with two books in their hands, their Bible and David Brainerd's journal that had been published. And the reason why it's had such massive impact is because his life is an example of what we've been talking about for the past few weeks, a life lived in secret devotion to the Father. During his lifetime looking at him, you would say, another unsuccessful missionary, yet in the Father's eyes, we got to see a life lived in secret devotion before the Father, something we've looked at week after week after week. This is now the third week. We talked about giving. Tim talked about giving a few weeks ago. We looked at prayer last week, and today will be the last week of it as we talk about fasting. Fasting, everybody's favorite spiritual discipline, fasting. So we'll look at three things as we uh, unpack this text. The heart of devotion, the heart of devotion, the folly of the hypocrites, and the reward of the Father. The heart of devotion, the folly of the hypocrites, and the reward of the Father. As a side note, I preached this text in seminary, uh, and it was eight minutes Okay, so I know what you're thinking. No, longer sermons. And I hear your cries, and so I've lengthened it. You are welcome. Okay, let's look at Matthew 6, verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. So again, this is the final example of secret devotion before God. We looked at giving, prayer, and now fasting. And I imagine, last week I started off by saying, we all feel guilty that we don't pray enough. And if that's true about prayer... I imagine fasting, we might be feeling a little bit extra guilt. I've never met anybody who's just like, I fast all the time. I just, I'm not very good at praying, right? 
Typically, if we're not good at one, we're certainly not good at the other. So again, there's a sense in which we could instantly feel shame that this could just be another sermon of you tell me how bad I'm doing at this. I feel you know, guilty and I leave just trying to do better. And I want to correct that from the very beginning by saying again, remember who is preaching. Not me. Remember who's preaching the Sermon on the Mount as we just sung. The Savior who is gentle and lowly, who says that burden that you're carrying, bring it to me so that I can take it. Take my yoke. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. When you feel shame, there's a sting of conviction that's good, the sting that comes from the Spirit that leads us to obedience. But when you feel ungodly shame, that is not from this Savior. He is calling you out of your shame to something far, far greater. So as you already hear the subject that we're going to talk about and feel the weight weighing you down, lift your eyes to the one preaching and know his motivation is not to pile on, but rather to call you out to joy, to joy. So fasting, maybe the the first thing we need to, uh, uh, first question we need to answer is what is fasting? What actually is it? Uh, And there's a whole bunch of definitions. Essentially, it is taking a good gift, something that God has given you that is a good gift, and temporarily, voluntarily laying it aside for the sake of devotion to God. Taking a gift from God, temporarily laying it aside for more explicit devotion to God. So every good gift that we enjoy, good food, friendship, whatever it may be, is a good gift from your Father that is meant to make you enjoy the capital G giver. In the same way, every parent in this room, you delight in giving your children gifts as they play with, you know, Harvey right now, my three-year-old, loves cars, uh, and Joe loves the Tupperware drawer, right? It's technically not a gift, but she loves, to be more accurate, destroying things, and it just delights my heart as it frustrates my mind, right? Every parent knows you give gifts, not because you want to spoil your kid, because you delight in your kid enjoying the gift, and especially delight in when they look at you and they say, Thank you, Father, Mother, for giving me these good gifts. So it is with every gift that God has given you. I just got back from a five-day trip to Destin, Florida. Where else would you go, right? That's the popular spot, right? So the sand, as you're looking at the sand, as it's blazing outside, and somehow the sand is cool. That's a good gift that's meant to make my eyes look up to the Creator. As you eat good food... As you, you know, taste the flavor, you're meant to look up to the divine chef who wired your tongue with taste buds to enjoy it. He could have given you tasteless paste to just keep your body going, but he doesn't. He gives you good food so that your eyes are lifted up to the divine chef, right? Good gifts are meant to make us look to the giver and worship him. And fasting comes in and says, I will take some time even to lay aside your good gifts, so that I might more explicitly focus on the giver. It's a way to live out. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a way of acting that out in a sense. So it's laying aside good gifts. Notice that it is not laying aside sinful things. Uh, I had uh, or I have a friend who growing up, 
Growing up religious, neither one of us would have been were, uh, converted or born again Christians. We thought we were. But uh, before every Easter during uh, the season of Lent, which historically in the church is the season where you uh, fast from things as you focus uh, on Passion Week leading to the resurrection, it's a way of uh, just joining in and focusing more on the resurrection. Every, every year we would, let's do Lent together. And we we're like, okay, what are we going to give up? What are we going to fast from? Uh, cussing. Let's be nicer to people. It's like, that's just sin, right? You should always be giving away and giving up sin, right? That's not an extra devotion thing. Just do that all the time and be nice to people all the time, right? You don't fast from sinful things, or rather you should say, you should always be fasting and putting to death sinful things, right? What you fast from is actually good gifts given to you from God. Typically food, but you can fast other things. You know, you could fast from... Uh, coffee, you can fast from media. DJ could fast from uh, the Miami Dolphins. He won't, but if he were more godly, he would, right? Uh, but typically, it's food. In this context, uh, I'm just kidding. Well, I'm not kidding. Uh, in this context, it's food. That's the primary thing that uh, Christians have fasted from. So that's what it is. The next question that typically comes up is, why do it? If fasting is laying aside good gifts and good gifts are meant, you know, for our enjoyment of the giver, why do it? Is it really that necessary? Uh, does it make God love me more if I do it? Uh, is it sin if I don't do it? Can I ask, right, th those are the questions that kind of flood into our minds as we're like, cool, 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 cool. I don't really want to do this. So am I unsaved if I don't, write Those questions flood into our mind. And those questions, I think, get right at the heart of this section that we've been in. I think those questions get right at the heart of Christianity, right at the heart of your relationship with your Father, of your fellowship with God and your devotion to God. Something we've talked about every week, especially last week, was you were made and you were saved to know Him, to commune with your Father, to live in fellowship with your Father. You weren't just saved to obey Him and serve Him, although you were saved to do those things. You were made to know the one, to delight in the one that you obey and you serve. Christianity is not, you know, accept Jesus and then get all of God's stuff. Christianity is receive Jesus and get God. You get the Savior that you've come to, that we just sang. You get the Savior of the world as your brother, as your friend, and you get God, the one who said, let there be light as your Father. That's Christianity. You're brought into fellowship, not just as God has filled out the divine paperwork, but to know the living God. So in light of this, when we come to fasting, and we start to ask those questions, the do I have to questions, the is it sin questions, what does that reveal about our understanding of Christianity? What does that reveal about our hearts, about what we think we're doing with this whole accept Jesus, receive Christ into our hearts thing? I want you to imagine there was a, a couple uh, that was about to get married. They're engaged, and you're having lunch with them, uh, and you're just counseling them. You're hearing about how they got together, and they're looking forward to marriage, and so you want to give them good advice, and you say something to the effect of, you know, you should, it's a good thing. You should uh, go on dates, you know, go once a week, go every other week, have a date night, and the engaged man says, whoa, 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 what do you mean date? We're going to get married. 
Do we really need to keep dating once we're married? I mean, is it going to make us any more married, right? Is it wrong if I don't? Is it sin not to, right? So you would say, at least I hope you would say, hang on, I don't think you understand what marriage is. Marriage is not, fill out some paperwork, say some vows, and then follow some rules. Marriage is being joined to a person and bringing together two people, and the rest of your life is to know that person and love that person and search out the mysteries of that person and delight in that person. And similarly, even more so, in your salvation, you have been brought to a living God, a personal God, the person of the Father, the person of the Son, the person of the Spirit. There's someone you've been joined to even more than your spouse. Do you see how backwards the do I have to question is? You've been united to a person brought into fellowship with a living God, the God of all majesty and of all joy. The do I have to question, the is it sin question, is about the worst question you could ask. A better question to ask is, will it increase my delight in him? Will it make me hate sin more and love him more? Will it stir my affections for him? Will it expand my capacity to drink in his glory and his beauty and to love him and to reject all other things? Those are far better questions you should ask. And it's a far better understanding of what this whole Christianity thing is all about, knowing and loving the eternal God that made you and has called you to himself. So in light of that, you see fasting kind of just slots right in. It seems to make a bit more sense. Let's look at uh, some of the uh, attitudes of those throughout the scriptures. All throughout, especially in the Psalms, when you read the hearts of the people of God that are just being poured out before their Father, before their God, you see this hunger, this longing after God. Let's look at a few Psalms together. Psalm 63, O God, you are my God, Earnestly I seek you, my soul, notice this language, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place. O Lord of hosts, my soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Psalm 27, one thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 73 Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This hunger after God, this longing after the God you were made for, you were made to know, you were redeemed to commune with, is meant to be a key characteristic of your life of your walk with the Lord. And seeing that makes fasting again fall right into place, and it might even make it desirable. It might even make it something you don't just grit your teeth and do, but something that you hunger 
for lack of a better term, to do. Your physical hunger, in a sense, when you're fasting, is meant to mirror, parallel this sort of spiritual hunger after God, this longing for the God you were made for. Uh, One of the things that C.S. Lewis, uh, the great author, apologist, uh, Christian, uh, says is each of us are, are meant, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, we're wired with a longing, with a desire, with this hunger that nothing in this world can actually satisfy. And actually, the best things in this world are meant to point beyond themselves, right, to the, to the creator of those things. And if we stop just at the gift, we stop short. They're meant to point beyond themselves to the giver. He says this, the books and the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if, we, if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, the news from a country We have never visited. And when C.S. Lewis became a born-again Christian, he said, I found the one where all the beauty comes from. I've found the tune. I've found the precious flower. I've found the city where all the beauty comes from. We're meant to have this longing that nothing in this life can satisfy, even the best meal. Nothing in this life can satisfy, however good the gift. And so fasting is a way of laying aside even the best of the best that has been given to you to go after the one where all the beauty comes from, to go after beauty himself. You see that. Fasting is meant to remind you God is the only one who can actually truly satisfy you even more than food, that man does not live by bread alone, and that his steadfast love is better than life. It's meant to flow out of your fellowship with him out of your longing for him, longing for an eternity with him. So that's the heart behind this passage. That's the heart of devotion that we've seen every week. We're going after in fasting. We're going after the Father in secret, the one where all the beauty comes from. So now let's zoom in a little bit and look at uh, the folly of the hypocrites, those who don't go after the Father, those who don't fast to go after the one where all the beauty comes from, the ones who are satisfied with the scent, the ones who are satisfied with just the first listening, and they stop there. Look at verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So notice a couple things. Notice one, Jesus says, when you fast... Just like when you give and when you pray, there's just this assumption that this is what the people of the kingdom do, right? When you fast, don't do it like them. Don't do it like the hypocrites do. The hypocrites and the Pharisees are kind of his, his subtweet, if you will. Uh, the Pharisees, we know, fasted twice a week, Luke 18. Uh, Pharisees fasted twice, twice a week, gave them plenty of opportunity to display their righteousness before men, to do the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying, to make sure they have the reputation, they've gained the reputation of the godly ones, 
right? The ones who do all the right spiritual disciplines. But when they fast, they purposefully disfigure their faces. They're holding their tummies, right? Uh, Why? Why do they do that? So that people will see and people will praise. So that others will see their disfigured faces, wonder why, oh, they must be fasting. How godly of them. How godly of them. Their fasting is supposedly for God, but really, who is it for? It's for man. And really, who is it ultimately for? Themselves. So that man will see and man will praise them and they will be high and lifted up. Uh, we, uh, my wife and I met in Australia at a missions organization. Uh, in a, a Bible school within that organization, there was a guy I was discipling, although I wasn't doing a great job of it. Uh, and he decided one time he wanted to fast. He wanted to fast for a week. Uh, and we would have dinners as a school. We would all eat together, and he would come to dinner. He would get an empty plate, and he would sit down at dinner with us with an empty plate and with a fork and a knife and just cross his arms, uh, which already people are like, what are you doing, man? Uh, and then he would comment on our food. He's like, oh, is that chicken? Looks good. So we're like, why aren't you eating? And he's like, oh, I am fasting. And so I, I uh, went to his room after dinner one night, and I said, hey, man, there's like one rule when it comes to fasting that the Bible points out, and you're literally doing the one thing you're not supposed to do. Uh, and then I asked him, uh, ultimately what this text is getting, I asked him, hey, who is this fast for? Who is this for? Because if it's so that everybody looks at you and knows that you're fasting and praises you for it, you are perfectly accomplishing that. Right? Almost weirdly intentionally accomplishing that, right? Who is that for? Is this for man or is it for God? And the hypocrites here, they know exactly who their fast is for. It's so that man sees and praises them. Right? It's for man and then ultimately for themselves. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. Right? They get what they're after. They want man to see and praise, and man does see. And praise. And so they get what they want. So the question is why is that bad? They're accomplishing their mission well, right? They're going after man's praise and they're getting after man's praise. They're getting the reward that they want. So why is that so bad or why is that foolish? And quite simply, because the praise of man, the reward of man is fickle, fleeting, empty, and enslaving. We've talked about this. Fickle, it will constantly change. Those who love you one minute will turn on you the next. It's fleeting, it will never last. The most famous actor, actress in the world right now, and the most famous athlete in the world right now, when my three-year-old grows up, they'll be an old has-been. They'll be the loser that my daddy liked, right? It will never last. Maybe you were really popular in high school. You constantly got the praise of man. If you go back to your reunion in 10 years and you haven't changed, you're the same. What will you receive instead of praise? You'll receive pity because you become Uncle Rico, right? (laughs) It will not last. Praise will never last. It will always run dry. Even all the praise in all of the world, it will eventually run dry. It's fleeting and it's empty. It will never actually satisfy you. You'll always need more. You'll always need more. I watched a couple months ago the Friends reunion. 
we're out of ideas for shows, so we're having reunions for old shows. Uh, and so uh, Matthew Perry, who played Chandler Bing, was talking, they were talking about the good times of the most popular show I think that's ever uh, been on. I haven't lived that long. Uh, it was on when I was born. Uh, and so super, super popular. And they're all having, you know, this was so fun. This is how much we loved it. And then Matthew Perry, who was kind of the funny one on the show, uh, gave a kind of dark take. And he said, yeah, you know, if I went out and I didn't get a laugh, it ruined my whole day, and it almost ruined my whole week. I couldn't sleep if one joke didn't land and they didn't laugh. In fact, when other people would get a laugh, I'd wonder, why are they getting a laugh and I'm not getting a laugh? Even when people would laugh at me, I'd wonder, why wasn't it bigger? He was trapped. He was imprisoned by this, this idea that it was never satisfying. Even he's the most famous actor on the most famous show in the world at the time, yet he's never satisfied. And that's what the praise of man does. There will always be a hole at the bottom of the bucket, and it will always eventually be empty. You'll always need more to keep filling that bucket back up. It's empty, and then it is enslaving. Man's praise will imprison you to man's opinion. Man's praise, if that's what you desire, if that's what you go after, it will imprison you to man's opinion. They will control you. Their thoughts of you will control you. If they aren't praising you enough, you must be doing something wrong. You better change who you are. Maybe you're not likable. Maybe you need a new personality. And if they do love you, you better not change. Because what if you do change and they don't like the new you and anything like that? You see it continually imprisons you. It will form who you are. It will form your identity, give you this false sense of identity. If you're the smart one, you better never say something dumb. Because then what will happen of what people think of you? If you're a good parent, your kids better not act up in front of others. Because then all of a sudden, what happens to your identity as a good parent? Well, something must be going on at home. Maybe something's going on with the marriage, right? Because their kid clearly doesn't know how to follow instructions, right? If you're the godly one, you can never repent. You can never just be a sinner saved by a gracious Savior. You've got to keep up appearances, right? Because what if people think you're a fake? You see how it begins to shape your identity, their opinions of you will imprison you. And as they control you, you will control them. They will begin to exist just to fill up your self-esteem. You will not be able to have any sort of meaningful relationships. The only people that are in your life will be there to keep your identity from crumbling. They will control you. You will control them. You're enslaved either way. Do you see how exhausting that is? Do you see how imprisoning that is? And do you see the loving heart of your Savior warning you away from it? He's not just giving you another legalistic rule to follow. He knows the self-imprisonment of the hypocrites, and he is calling you away from it. He loves you enough to say, don't go there. Don't walk near that cliff. There's a weird show that I don't know if it's on anymore called My Strange Addiction. I've seen one episode, and in that episode, it was enough. I was done with it after that. Uh, and the, there was a lady who was addicted to sniffing gasoline. Real expensive habit. Ha, 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 boo, government, right? Uh, so you guys love that stuff. Uh, so right, he had a tank of gasoline. Uh, sorry. And she was, she, was, she was addicted to sniffing it. And so she just carries around all day, sniff, sniff, and her hair is falling out. She's having stomach problems. She's beginning to lose her memory. This thing that she thinks is giving her life is 
quite literally killing her slowly. And everyone in her life knew it. Everyone in her life was begging her to stop. And that is what the praise of man does. You think it gives you life. You think it fills you up. And it slowly kills you. It enslaves you. It imprisons you. This reward that the hypocrites are receiving is no reward at all. And Jesus knows it. And he's begging you, don't go that route. Come away from it. Come away from it. It's fickle. It's fleeting. It's empty. It's enslaving. And then lastly, it's theft. It's theft. When you desire to take the praise of man for yourself, you are taking something that does not belong to you. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God is the only one worthy of man's praise. And when we desire it for ourselves, we're stealing something that does not belong to us. Notice as you read the scriptures, everyone who knows how glorious God is, notice their reaction when people praise them. Every angel that gets bowed down to quickly, very quickly says, get up, okay? Do not worship me. You're going to get us both in trouble. Get up quickly, right? Do not worship me. Worship him. When John the Baptist, who was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the most famous crazy river preacher, right? Everyone's coming out to hear him. Jesus then begins his ministry and takes a bit of John the Baptist's fame and people come up to John the Baptist and say, hey, people are following him and not you. Some of your own own disciples are going to follow him. What does John the Baptist say? Yeah, he must increase, I must decrease. Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, they're going through Galatia and there's a lame man that they heal and the city is amazed at this miraculous power and they come out and they bring sacrifices and offerings and they say the gods have come down among us and they start worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And what do Paul and Barnabas do? Tear their clothes and say, stop, we are men like you. Do not worship us, worship him. Get your eyes off of us and onto him. Those who know of the infinite glory of our God, don't want to take any of his praise, and they want him to receive all of it. They know the poison of the praise of man, that it is fickle, fleeting, empty, enslaving, and theft. Or just use another word, it's foolish to go after. So Jesus is calling you away from it, calling you away from that poisonous reward that's no reward at all, but he's also calling you to something. He's not just saying, don't walk towards that cliff. He's saying, come back this way. So what is he calling us to? Lastly, the reward of the Father. Verse 17, but when you fast, O Christian, O member of the kingdom, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. So again, we see there, when you fast, this assumption that we do, when you do it, how should you do it? Anoint your head, wash your face. In other ways, in other words, look good, look sprightly, right? So that nobody knows anything's wrong with you, right? Look like you just came back from the gym, you're ready to go, right? Put gel in your hair, put makeup on your face, whatever you need to do, shower, right? Make sure other people can't see. Instead of disfiguring your face, make it look 
better than on a normal day when you just had some Cheerios or something like that, right? Prevent them from seeing your fasting so that only God, only God can see. Notice your Savior here not giving you just a method, not just giving you a mode to follow in your spiritual disciplines. He's getting at the heart of you, your heart while you are devoted to God. When you give, don't let this hand know what this hand is doing so that only he sees. When you pray, shut the door. Don't let anybody look in so that only he sees. And here, when you fast, look good so that they don't know, so that only he sees. Man's reward is fickle, fleeting, empty, enslaving, theft, run from it, and run to, Jesus says, the infinitely better reward of your Father, rather than fickle and fleeting, he's eternal. He's unchanging. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's the same. He's the only one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His love for you is unchanging, even when you sin, even when you rebel, because it's not based on your actions, it's based on his son's perfect life. Romans 8, 31. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or danger? For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul quite literally naming everything he can possibly fathom and then just kind of cover all his bases says, or anything else. Nothing can separate you from his love because he is unchanging and he is eternal. Don't go after the fickle and the fleeting. In an ever-changing world, your God is the only constant. Go after his unchanging reward. Rather than fickle and fleeting, it's eternal and unchanging. And rather than enslaving, it's freeing. Uh, One of my favorite books as a kid is called uh, you Are Special by Max Lucado, Lucado, however you say the name, uh, which I don't love that title, but the book is great. Um, and it's about a woodworker named Eli, which is Hebrew for God, who made uh, a town of Wemmicks, little wood people. Uh, and the Wemmicks, they're uh, you know, in the town, and they have two boxes full of stickers, one with gold stars, one with gray. And all they do all day is you know, judge one another. If you're a pretty Wemmick, and you can do cartwheels and climb on boxes and other impressive stuff for wooden people to do, you get a gold star from the others. If you're an ugly Wemmick, if your you know, paint is scuffed and you trip and fall, you're clumsy, you get a gray dot. And there's a Wemmick who is the uh, clumsiest and ugliest of them all named Punchinello, who only ever got gray dots, never got a gold star in his life. And he got to the point where he didn't want to go outside 
because he thought, what if I say something dumb and I get a great dot? Or what if I stumble and I get a great dot? And then he meets uh, a woman, a Wimmick woman uh, named Lucia, who has no stickers, no great dots or no stars. And so he asks her, how did this happen to you? And she said, I, well, I go see Eli uh, every day. And the stickers just don't stick. People try to put them on and they just fall off. You should go see him. I think he might be able to help with your problem, and Punchinello is worried, but then eventually kind of breaks and goes to go see Eli and walks into his big uh, woodworker shop and gets a little freaked out and starts to leave, and then he hears his name called. And Eli calls him and picks him up and just explains to him, I made you, I love you, and I know you. And the more you come to see me every day, and the more you come to know me, the less the stickers will stick to you. They'll just begin to fall off. The less you'll care about the stickers sticking to you. And as the book ends, uh, Punchinello is leaving, and as he walks out the door, one of the gray stickers rolls off. And I love that because it gets at this very point. The more you see your life in light of your father, your maker, who delights in you, the more the enslaving opinions of man won't matter to you. As C.S. Lewis says, you won't think less of yourself. You'll just think of yourself less. You'll just be free to live in light of the delight of your father because when he looks at you, again, he sees his perfect son. When you're with your best friend, I doubt you're constantly thinking, okay, how do I keep our conversation going and what's some good, you know, uh, small talk conversations that just so there's not these awkward moments. When you're with your best friend, I imagine you just are okay sitting in silence because there's nothing to earn. You already know they love me. I love them. I'm not performing for them. I'm just enjoying their presence. How much more a heavenly father who says there's no condemnation. Christ Jesus is the one who died for you. Who's there to condemn? I'm the one who charges people, and I declare you innocent because when I look at you, I see my son's perfect life. What more could be freeing from the imprisonment of man than just knowing that you're delighted in by your father and your maker? Rather than enslaving, your father's reward is freeing, and rather than empty, he's infinitely satisfying. Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand. There is pleasure forevermore. There's fullness. There's no lack in him. He doesn't just fill up an empty bucket. He is all satisfying. Psalm 47, you, God, put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and their wine abound. When the world has all that it can offer me, you have put far more joy in my heart than they do. His reward dwindles the empty praise of man. Why? Because he's the God of all joy. He's the all-satisfying God who satisfies every longing. He's the one where all the beauty comes from. The greatest meal you've ever tasted. The greatest landscape you've ever laid your eyes on, whether it's the Alps or the ocean, the most beautiful thing your eyes have ever fallen on, the greatest companionship you've ever felt from someone else are but the first tastes of the joy of your Father that you will one day experience to its fullness in eternity because that's who your God is. He is all 
satisfying. Rather than empty, his reward is all satisfying. And rather than being thieves of his glory, you will actually be more satisfied when he gets the glory. Like John the Baptist, I will happily decrease so that he increases. Like Paul and Barnabas, no, 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 no. Put your praise there. That's actually why we're here, so that your praise would go there, not here. The Westminster Catechism says very famously, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of humanity? Why, what's our ultimate goal? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And C.S. Lewis, we're quoting him a lot today, C.S. Lewis commenting on that says, the Scotch Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. To fully enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, he is inviting us to enjoy him. When you don't try and steal away his praise, but rightly give it to him, there is nothing more satisfying because you're doing the very thing you were created to do. See this, see the heart of devotion, see the foolishness of the hypocrites, and see the infinitely greater reward of your Father, and then quite simply, let your devotion, the devotion of your life, be for God, be for your heavenly Father who sees in secret, fast, because you long to know the one that you were made for, you long to know the one where all the beauty comes from, you long to know beauty himself with a capital B. Don't ask the is it sin questions. Ask the will it cause me to delight questions. Don't ask the what's the bare minimum I can do and still get heaven questions. Rather, ask like David, there's one thing I ask, to dwell with you all the days of my life and simply gaze upon your beauty. That's what you're going to be doing for eternity, by the way. If you had a different idea, sorry to disappoint you. That's what you're meant to ask. I long to know you and simply gaze upon your beauty. Fast, hunger after him, and know that you can because of, again, the one preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Because of the Son who leads you to the Father, you can know you will be satisfied. Jonathan Edwards uh, talked about there's two ways to know honey gave this example. You can study its chemical makeup. You can look at its color. You can look at the weird bubbles on the inside and however bees spit it out. I don't know how honey works. You could study it or you could taste it. And the scriptures say, taste and see that the Lord is good. One of my favorite stories in the Gospel of John and John 1 is Nathaniel, future disciple, sitting under a fig tree. His buddy Philip comes up to him and Philip says, I, we found the Messiah we found the Savior. We think we found him. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel very famously says, what good thing has ever come out of Nazareth? And I love Philip's response. His response isn't, well, that was a prophecy, and so he's actually fulfilling it. So it's actually a good thing. Right? He doesn't reason with him. He just says, come and see. Come and meet him. Come and encounter this Jesus. Come and encounter this Savior, and you'll see. And so I say the same thing to you. Come to him. He's not an idea. He's a living God who knows you, who loves you, and who beckons you to come to him so that he might satisfy every hunger. Robert Murray McChain says this, unfathomable oceans 
are of grace are in Christ for you, dive and dive again, and you will never come to the bottom of these depths. How many millions of dazzling pearls and gems are at this moment hid in the deep recesses of ocean caves, but their unsearchable riches in Christ seek after them. Come to him and hear his words. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Come to him, the one who takes you to the Father who is in secret, and know that if you have come to him, there will come a day where every longing of your heart will be met. There will come a day when fasting like the sun, S-U-N, fades away because it won't be necessary anymore because we will hear the glorious declaration, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and we will see his face and we will be eternally satisfied in him. There will be no more need for fasting because we will have the one where all the beauty comes from to enjoy for eternity. Let's pray. Father, it is a humbling thing to read psalmists pray and see a devotion for you that seems foreign to us. We are quick to look at our phones. We are quick to be distracted. We're quick to run to sin, but even uh, when we don't run to sin, we run to distraction. We run to entertainment. We run to things that we look to satisfy us that is not you, and we just ask you to change that. We ask you to make us a people that has this longing, that that hunger, that spiritual hunger, just to know you and fellowship with you would be an unignorable thing burning in our hearts to where we just want to wake up earlier so that we have more quantity time with you. And we just want to tell our neighbors about you because we've tasted and seen of your goodness. And we just want our kids to know you, not just so they don't go to hell, but so that they know the God of all joy. And we pray that you would fill our hearts with that. We pray that you would fill this church with that. We pray that you would fill our homes with that, that we would be a people who long for their Father who is in secret. And we give out of joy. And we shut the door of our prayer closet out of joy. And we fast out of joy because we long for your eternal Reward, please do that in our hearts. Anything else is just motivation that will fade. But a work of your spirit will last. You're the God who sends your spirit to bear the fruit of the spirit. And so I pray that you would, that you would transform our hearts, that we might look more like your glorious son. And that our minds might be renewed a bit more and our eyes might be lifted a bit more. To him, and we might live and move and have our being in him. And we pray in his glorious name. Amen.